Good morning. Let's look at our bulletin. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1, 3. Uh, We're scheduled to uh, continue the DVD series this evening at 6, um, but we've got campers out and stuff. How many are planning on being here tonight? How many we got? One, <laughs> two. <laughs> um, I think with two, maybe we should put it off till next week. <laughs> Unless you guys want to do a report. <laughs> okay, let's um, let's postpone. Postpone the next segment of the DVD series until next week. Annual, speaking of postponing, annual business meeting this Wednesday evening at 7. Reports are due. Anybody got a weather forecast? <laughs> well, it's been a winter, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, some, some tough weather. Uh, winter blast ends today. Oh, and by the way, um, I'm, I'm sure you know, but there's no choir tonight either. So, um, Winter Blast ends today, so they're wrapping that up. Andrea's uh, contact number. A walk down memory lane with the church family. That's Saturday, February the 23rd at 1.30. Bring soup uh, and a dish to pass, and pre-submit a photo of each family member as a baby to Marcy as soon as possible. Bring albums of weddings, trips, and memories to share. In March, we're going to an escape room where they will uh, we'll race the clock uh, to solve a mystery as a team. If you're interested, sign up on the helps board, and that's about $20 a person. Acts and facts are here for February. Um, I have a note here from Ken Jones. Greetings from Florida. I hope you are all able to keep warm. <laughs> What a blessing it is to be able to uh, join you on Sunday morning through the live stream. My daily prayer in the Thornville Church has always been that the Lord would provide spiritual needs of this church and also supply the financial needs. And I believe that both of those needs were fulfilled last Sunday. Praise his name. With the budget deficit met and also the spiritual needs met through the awesome message from Pastor Fred, elections, assurance, what a spiritual blessing that was. Sheep food for the sheep. I'm looking forward to the next of the sermons from the book of Peter. I think of you often and send Christian love to you all. In Christ, Ken Jones. And he signs, the Lord is good. Um, I'm standing here thinking there was one more thing, but I think I, I, think I got it covered. Um, Jolene, are you busy? <laughs> we need you. Um, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from uh, John, the third chapter, 1 through 21.
Let's open with prayer this morning. Can you stand with me? Phil, can I ask you to open? Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you with gladness in our hearts to say to you and give it to us to pay for our sins so that we may not be judged. We pray, Lord, that you would commune with us, that you would strive with us this hour, that your Holy Spirit would be with us as the sermon goes through. We pray that you be with our pastor as he brings forth the message. Let the word come from his mouth, Lord, be as a double-edged sword, and pierce the hearts of the unbelieving. Let this sword also quicken the hearts of those who have perhaps grown cold in Christ, and rejuvenate and revive them, and that their spirits back on fire again. Watch over and protect us this hour, O Lord. We ask that you be with our, our administration that leads this government. We pray that you be with our military Um, okay, good morning. I think our first one is 405 in the hymnal. Did I read that right? Okay, 405 in the hymnal. And I'll ask you to stand. Oh, you already started standing. Sorry. I'm out of practice.
Okay, congregational hymn. Kaylin. Four in the brown. Number four in the brown. Okay, why did you pick this song? Thank you. 
Scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter, first chapter, and we'll be reading 1 through 6. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadonia, Cappadocia, excuse me, Asia, and Bithynia, who has been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification, sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. For through faith, um, who through, rather, faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of uh, the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you are greatly, uh, you greatly rejoice, Though now, for a little while, you may have uh, had to suffer uh, grief in all kinds of trials. May God add his richest blessing to his word today. Thank you. Remain standing and turn to page 52 in the hymnal. Page 52. Receive to 
And our scripture text this morning is found in 1 Peter. We are again in, still in chapter 1, still in the first six verses. Hi, Dan and Dana. Good to, good to see you guys. In our last study of 1 Peter, we considered just what it is that God has chosen us to when Peter writes to God's elect. He says two things. He's, we have been chosen to obedience to Jesus Christ, verse 2. This is the obedience of faith and repentance which brings the gospel promises home to us. The Bible asserts that not all men have faith, but God's people have faith, and they have faith because it is God's gift to them along with repentance. And yes, when the gospel is preached, we are obligated to believe and obey. No one is ever saved without this obedience to the gospel requirements. I mean, can you conceive of God forgiving people, receiving them, making them a part of his family, if they do not believe in his son as savior, if they do not repent of their sins? just inconceivable yet a lot of the preaching going on in our day has nothing to do with Christ and his sacrifice his cross work and his burial and his resurrection they're preaching other things which are no gospel at all so we're called to obedience to Jesus Christ and secondly we're called to sprinkling by his blood a reference to the old covenant animal sacrifices whose Blood was applied by the priests to atone for the people, foreshadowing the coming of the Savior Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who would make a full and final and effectual sacrifice that would forever cleanse sinners, establishing a permanent security and peace between sinners and God. No more sacrifices, no more animal sacrifices. And Christ only sacrificed one time, the writer of Hebrews says. We also learn that every person of the divine trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has a part in our salvation. The Father is ever the person in scripture acknowledged as the one who chose the people destined for his family. Jesus, the Son, is the one who would voluntarily become the sacrifice for sinners and pay their debt to the broken law. And the Spirit is the agent of change, the one who actually draws us to Christ in faith, gives us life. Today's lesson zones in on that spiritual life, which is the work of God's Holy Spirit. So, as we come to this today, let's ask for the Spirit's enablement. Our Lord, we're thankful and appreciative for the Word, always for the Word of God. We are re we are reminded that throughout history there have been the haters of God's word that have tried to burn the Bible or and have burned people that believed and taught the Bible. But here we are today, 2019, opening our Bibles, sitting in our pews, in our country where we have religious freedom and the word of God is still preached. This is not accidental. It's on purpose. Your purpose. 
You you have done it all, and we give you the glory. Now we're asking that in this hour, your spirit would come to us, use the word of of 1 Peter, your apostle, one of the apostles that you love so much. We're using his words, your words through him, to challenge our hearts and to point our thoughts to thee. We ask this for your glory. We ask this for our good in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking today at the subject of God's gift of spiritual life, otherwise known as new birth. One day, a top theologian of the Jewish faith visited Jesus at night to seek answers for some of the questions arising from Jesus' power to perform miraculous signs, John 3, verse 2. Even here, the ability to do the miraculous was designed by God to give credibility to Jesus' message as having come from God. The same would be used later to credential the apostolic message and their ministry. But the interesting thing here is that Jesus did not humor Nicodemus on his curiosity of miracles, but immediately confronted him with the essential truths of the gospel necessary for his salvation. You know, sometimes people will come to you with interests of a religious nature that are rather peripheral, at best, or downright irrelevant at worst. They'll ask you such things as, Uh, Well, who did Cain marry? Cain being the son of Adam, one of the sons. Well, were there dinosaurs on Noah's ark? Who cares? (laughs) These are distractions from the essential issues. Oh, we can provide biblically-based answers for those kinds of questions, but... I would suggest that we do as Jesus did with Nicodemus, which was something like this. There is an answer to those questions, but that is not your real problem, Nicodemus. Your real need is to know how God is to become, how you are to become, or rather, a citizen in the kingdom of God. Listen to Jesus' answer to Nicodemus. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. John 3, verse 3. This was not exactly what Nicodemus was expecting to hear. No, but it was what Nicodemus needed to know. He needed to know this if he were ever to learn of God's plan to save sinners. Miracles may demonstrate the power of God, power which no one else has. Jesus did many miracles in his ministry. But miracles, listen to me, miracles do not convert people from infidels to believers, from skeptics to disciples of Christ. I mean, think about this. Jesus told the crowd who had just eaten of five small barley breads and two small fish, 
that were multiplied to feed 5,000 plus people. But he said to them, don't work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. John 6, verse 27. But in context, all they did was argue with Jesus and contest the fact that he had come from heaven. You have seen me, and still you do not believe, said Jesus. Verse 36. So, seeing the miracle-working Christ does not necessarily convince people of Jesus' deity and authority to command allegiance. They saw and they still didn't believe. Nicodemus was puzzled by Jesus' reference to being born again, so he went on to explain, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God Unless he's born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. John 3, verse 5 through 8. So here Jesus equates being born again with being born of the Spirit. To that skeptical crowd in John 6, who contested Jesus' statement that he was the bread of life from God, Jesus said, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not Believe John 6, verse 63 through 65. Now in our text, Peter tells us that it is God the Father who has given us new birth. He sends his life-quickening spirit to install God-life into our hearts that are dead towards God. This is the new birth. It's revolutionary. A life never before present and operative. That's why it's called new by Peter. It parallels the coming into our world of a baby, a new entity that we all acknowledge as the ushering in of a new life. Hence the term birth or Jesus' term born again. Actually, the Greek, born from above. Well, that's even more mysterious, isn't it? We're born from above. We even use this term about babies when someone asks, well, how old is your baby? We reply, oh, he or she, as the case may be, is a newborn. That's our term, meaning... Just days old, right? The term references the beginning of a new physical life that has just become a member of the human race and of your particular family, as the case may be. Well, Jesus used this terminology to indicate to Nicodemus and to us 
that this is precisely what occurs when a person comes into God's family. All of us come as newborns. A new life becomes a reality. Only it is spiritual life that is referred to, not physical life. And the other analogies also apply. New. So it wasn't there beforehand. Birth. So it is a beginning of a life that is awake to God and awake to his will in time, place, of history. It's newborn, thus not existent for any before. It results in birthing a person into God's family, the church, the fellowship of God's people. In fact, Jesus told Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. John 3, verse 3. May I say that this is how the nomenclature born-again Christian came to be. There are people who are Christian in name only. They make spiritual claims to be followers of Christ, but their life and their deeds disprove their talk. We're learning that on the DVD that we look at at night, talking about the type of evangelism that goes on in America, primarily from false teachers. So, the Christian community began to use the phrase born-again Christian, not just Christian, but born-again Christian, to distinguish between the sayers and the doers in our culture. If God's Spirit gives a person new spiritual birth, then the reality will be, as Paul told the churches of Galatia, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and following. So it's ludicrous to claim to be a member of the household of God and still live like the devil. We have it all the time, though. People see no inconsistency whatsoever. They do not see it because they have never been given new birth. They're still thinking with their old, human, sinfully birthed mentality. Paul writes it this way. Those who live according to the sinful nature, see, not the new nature now, the sinful nature, they have their minds set on what that nature desires. But... Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Romans 8 verse 5. 
God gives us a new mindset in the new birth. We think, have you said, heard people say to you, boy, you really think weird. <laughs> and, and they're referring to the fact that we look at life differently than they look at life. And guess what? They're right, or they, they better be right. We should be looking at life different than the world looks at life. Because we're looking through sanctified eyes that have come to know the Savior and the creator of our world, which we didn't see before. Secondly, we are given a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, says Peter. I mentioned in a previous study, and it's worth repeating, that the Bible does not use the word hope like we do to indicate doubt or uncertainty. Well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. What are we saying? We are saying that's my desire. We're saying I'm uncertain. I don't know, but I hope it doesn't rain. That is not how the Bible uses the word hope. The Bible uses the word hope to indicate the direct opposite. That is, to affirm something that's yet in the future, but just as sure to happen. Notice the certainty of these statements using hope. I'm going to read some for you. Psalm 33, verse 20. We wait in hope for the Lord, says the psalmist. He is our help and our shield. In other words, he is certain of God's help. He is certain of God's defense. He's not saying, I don't know if God's going to be my shield and defense. He's not saying that at all. He's actually saying the direct opposite. Nothing wishy-washy about it. When Paul was on trial before Felix, the governor, he referred to the Christian community, which the Jews hated, and he said, I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man, Acts 24, verse 15 and 16. Paul was not saying, he was not saying, I hope there's a resurrection. <laughs> but I can't be certain if there is. No, he wasn't saying that. He was saying, the reason I I'm on trial is because my hope in God is that there will be a resurrection. And you see, he was teaching that resurrection was a coming future certainty. And the people listening to that began to think of him as being a little weird, a little crazy in the head. In Romans 8, Paul speaks about creation waiting redemption's final outcome. And he writes, For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated 
from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Wow. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Romans 8, 20 and following. Now he's not talking about hope in the sense of doubt. He's using hope in the sense of it's not quite here yet. But it's coming. And we're confident that it's coming. That's our hope. This text is explaining to us how the Bible uses the word hope to indicate anticipation of something coming in the future. He is saying creation is waiting for the day of liberation. It isn't here yet, but it's coming. Likewise, we believers, we eagerly await our final adoption as God's people. It too isn't here yet, but it's coming. And since that is our hope, we patiently wait for it. So it's a little different on how the Bible uses the word hope. In our text, Peter says that God has given us a living hope. I like that expression. A living hope. Wow. Very literally, the promise of life eternal That's not an empty promise, but it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen. Peter is fixing his assertion that believers are guaranteed life eternal on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. He is saying, Christ arose, and all those who die believing in Christ as Savior will also rise. It's based on the same Miracle working God. And there's no doubt about this. There's there's no uncertainty. He's not suggesting that. There's no maybe. There's no ambiguity. There's no wishful thinking based on the unknown. No, no, none of that. Christ arose from the grave. So will you. God has given you his assurance. Salvation is directly linked with forgiveness and removal of our sin. Last week we talked about the sprinkling, the sprinkled blood as an essential to cleanse and remove sin. And illustrated in the two goat uh, way that they did things <clears throat> in the Old Testament. One goat to carry away the sin confessed on its head. You remember one goat to die. Both goats representing Christ. But without resurrection, death wins and Christ loses. So if your hope is in a dead Jesus, then 
you lose with him. Paul says it this way, if the dead are not raised, now notice how he words this, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Which is a way of saying, you know, Christ really did die. So if you're going to say the dead are not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And he goes on. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep, that means died, in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, there's that word again, we are to be pitied more than any other men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16 and following. Now there's more than a hint here that our salvation is linked to the living Lord. This is more clearly explained in Romans 6. We were therefore buried with him, writes Paul, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Romans 6 verse 4 and 5. What I'm saying is that what Jesus accomplished, he did on behalf of his, peop- of his people. So if you're one of his people, then you reap the benefit of his actions, death, burial, and resurrection. And make no mistake about it, the grave has no permanent hold on Jesus, the author of life. The startling affirmation of Peter's sermon in Jerusalem at the outpouring of the Spirit was this. Peter says, this man was handed over to you. He's talking about Jesus. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope. There's that word again. Because you will not abandon me to the grave. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fulfill me with the joy of your presence. And then Peter pops up. Brothers... I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and he was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But, but he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath 
that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Acts 2, 23 and following. Peter saying David made a prophetic utterance that Christ would come out of the grave and we his apostles are witnesses to the fact. Now he doesn't go into all the way they are witnesses but elsewhere in the New Testament we find out Jesus visited the apostles and over 500 brethren at one time after his resurrection. So the living hope is full of assurance because the one in whom we place our faith is alive, he's well, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he's ready to be revealed at his second coming. Creation waits for this. And I might say we wait for this. Our anticipation is founded in the evidence of the risen Lord. God's salvation, if it's anything, is a liberation from the chains of sin and death and hell. And this is why Jesus came. And this is the basis for our living hope. Now thirdly, Peter says, we are given an unchangeable inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Three words he uses. Never perish, never spoil, never fade. Kept in heaven for you, verse 4. These are like links in an unbreakable chain. Observe here in Peter what I call chain link reasoning, by which I mean that Peter starts with one thought, verse 3. God in mercy has given us new birth. This leads to another link into a living hope. This leads to another link through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which leads to still another link, an imperishable inheritance. Oh yeah, and then there's one last link. We are shielded by the power of God until salvation is final reality is consummated. We're kept the salvation is complete. Often when we think through a certain concept, one thought leads to another and yet to another and so on. That's the way we think. Now the difference between us and Peter is that he, as an apostle, is not relating his own ideas on life and salvation, but he is giving us the sequential paradigm of salvation as it has unfolded and will continue to unfold in time-space history. Under inspiration, Peter is giving us God's timetable of events that affect our salvation. 
And the link under present consideration is the assurance of an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. When we think of an inheritance, we think of what is left by left to us by our parents when they die. But everything bequeathed to us by our parents is temporal. That means it's destined to perish. The malls are going to get it. <laughs> Age is going to get it. If it's our clothing. Rust will destroy anything that's metal. Electronics will break down. Furniture will become old and rickety. Even the family homestead will need constant maintenance, right? In other words, it all will perish, will spoil, will fade. Such is the transitory nature of earthly physical things. And this is why our Lord gave his exhortation to his disciples Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break through and steal. Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20. So Jesus was alluding to the same reality that Peter states as being an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Both these guys are on the same page. Perish, spoil, fade tell us that there is a built-in obsolescence in everything that is man-made. Nothing manufactured, Nothing organized, nothing nothing written as law, nothing designed by man lasts forever. Manufactured goods wear out, organized programs become obsolete, laws are revoked or changed, today's designs are abandoned tomorrow. Why? Why? Why would you bank your life, why would you bank your existence on such fragile, temporal things? The people do it all the time, don't they? I mean, they do. Yes, we need food, we need clothing, we need housing, we need transportation, we need money to pay the bills. And Jesus has not ignored these needs. But he sets this perspective to his people. He says to them, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things that I just talked about will be given to you as well. John or Matthew 6 verse 33. There is an imperishable, imperishable inheritance God has in reserve for his elect people that is not subject to decay or loss or thievery. There's three strong links. Here they are. Peter says that this inheritance by its very nature is imperishable. 
imperishable. Hmm. I was listening to a trucker talk about transporting produce from the growers in California to the stores in the east, and he made specific mention to strawberries. And his comment to the fellow trucker was something to the effect that strawberries were a hot load. Those were his words. Strawberries are a hot load. Now, by hot load, he did not mean that the berries were to be kept warm. No, just the opposite. But rather, due to the highly perishable nature of strawberries, once they're picked, he only had a small window of time to deliver the strawberries to the stores and the warehouses in eatable condition. In other words, the nature of the strawberry is that it spoils easily. Now they try to deter that as much as possible by picking the berries a little green or by using refrigerated trucks. They keep the trucks moving 24 hours a day, not just during the daylight. But still, all of that said, there is loss due to the fact that berries perish in transit. That is the nature of strawberries. Their genetic code is not very resistant to mold, to bacterial, to decomposition. Well, Peter says about the salvation we inherit from God, that it can, these are his words, it can never perish. I like that. By its very nature, it is eternal. It is lasting. Peter uses three terms. Perish, spoil, fade. The salvation of God cannot perish, spoil, fade. All of which are Greek words prefixed with the antecedent A in front of them. You know what A means if it's attached to the front of a word. It means not. If we say that killing babies is amoral, amoral, we mean it is not the moral thing or right thing to do, which, by the way, is in the news again. Thus, Peter, in describing our inheritance from God, says that it is not perishable. He's got the A in front of all these words. Not perishable, that it's not subject to decay. Not subject to spoilage or contamination from without. Not subject to fading or deterioration from its pristine beauty, never losing its original perfection. Not, not, not. A is attached to all those words. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. We read that those who are called may receive, here's the way it's worded, the promised eternal inheritance. Wow. Did you know that was in the Bible? Hebrews 9 verse 15. Promised eternal inheritance. Think of that. An inheritance which is eternal can never perish, spoil, fade. By its very nature, our inheritance is secure. Okay, where is it secure? 
kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven? Probably the safest security structure in our country, in our nation, is Fort Knox, Kentucky, which guards and preserves 4,500 tons of gold bullion. I read this off the internet and I just put it in my notes. Below the fortress-like structure lies the gold vault, which is lined with granite walls and is protected by a blast-proof door that weighs 22 tons. The door. No single person is entrusted with the entire combination to the vault. Various members of the depository staff must dial separate combinations known only to them. I'm still reading. Beyond the main vault door, smaller internal cells provide further protection. The facility is ringed with several fences and is under armed guard by the officers of the United States Mint Police. The depository premises are within the site of Fort Knox, a United States Army post, allowing the Army to provide additional protection. The depository is protected by numerous layers of physical security, alarms, video cameras, armed guards, and the Army units based at Fort Knox, including... Apache helicopters, gunships, and the like at Godman Army Airfield, the 16th Cavalry Regiment, training battalions of the United States Army Armor School and the 3rd Brigade Combat Team of the 1st Infantry Division, totaling over 30,000 soldiers with associated tanks, armored personnel carriers, attack helicopters, and artillery, end quote. They weren't kidding when they were saying it's a fortress, right? And the boast, the boast of Fort Knox is that no one has ever penetrated its security and stolen the gold. No one. But does anyone really believe that if a foreign power launched an all-out assault using nuclear explosives and sophisticated weaponry and massive forces in a surprise attack, that Fort Knox would not be vulnerable to exploitation? What I'm saying is that anything man-made is subject to compromise. Anything on earth is subject to invasion and confiscation. The reason our inheritance in Christ is secure and beyond any compromise or loss is that it's kept in heaven. Wow. Where, says our Lord, moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break through and steal. Matthew 6, verse 20. 
And they do not because they cannot. Heaven is out of their reach. It is a realm into which they have no access. Praise God. That's where our inheritance is, brethren. That's why it is so secure. And then a third point, final point, is that God is the guardian of our inheritance. Look at verse 5. It says of us, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1 verse 5. Fort Knox is protected by an army guard. Our inheritance, verse 7, by faith of greater worth than gold, (laughs) is protected by the God of the universe. Paul painted this picture of the security of every believer. Here's what he writes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he throws out some possibilities, just for thought. Shall trouble, what about that? Trouble, yeah, that could separate us, right? Or hardship, or what about persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists these bad things that might, we might think could do it. But then he answers his own question. No, he says... In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8. Verse 35 and following. And I remind you that Peter is writing to a people under persecution and under trial. Verse 6. And so what he's been teaching them concerning their inheritance in Christ is a breath of fresh air in the midst of their misery. The writer of Hebrews gives this encouragement as well. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13 verse 5. What do you value as your inheritance? The car left to you by your dad? 
house, a property, your mother's favorite jewelry, a sizable cash deposit in the bank. Jonah said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Wow. But I, says Jonah, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah 2, verse 8, verse 9. Jonah says there's something more more important. (laughs) There's something more important than worthless idols. They might be gold or silver or whatever, but they're just worthless. The salvation comes from the Lord. Jesus is in lockstep with Jonah when he said this. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Mark 8, verse 36. What what have you really gained? If you own the world, but you lose your soul. The world is destined to perish, right? Your soul is going to live on and on and on and on and on. Only what God gives as an inheritance will make it through the judgment of fire that is to come. Everything else is hay, wood, straw. We need gold, silver, precious stones. The kind of things that are eternal and come from God's grace. Our Lord, we're so thankful to give us this perspective. We want to be turned away from this insatiable appetite people have for things, money, fortune. Houses, cars, anything material of substance and wealth. But it's all destined to perish. It's going to rust away or be taken away or burned away. But it's going to go away. We want something more stable than that. We want something permanent. We want something eternal. And that something is a someone. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And this someone has an eternal kingdom that won't spoil or fade. Not subject to being robbed. It's not subject to deterioration. Not subject to corruption. Lord, please give us that. We have it in Jesus. Help us to get our perspectives right. And if there's any here today that don't know this reality, may you find them today, change their heart and change their mind, and grant them a taste and an appetite 
for that which is eternal. For that's the only thing that lasts. Honor your son Jesus in whose name we pray. With thanksgiving. Amen. Our closing hymn is 410 in the brown hymnal. I like this hymn. It says, My faith looks up to thee. Let's stand together as we sing. I'm so glad that our inheritance in Christ is eternal. The thieves can't get at it. Our sin can't destroy it. Satan cannot take it away. It's kept in heaven, Peter says. Power of God Almighty. Someday, heaven and us are going to be joined together. Either in death or in his second coming, whichever comes. And we can look with anticipation on that. Amen. I have an item that I need to talk to the uh, deacons about. So if you'll stay for a few minutes, come to the office.
um, the property back here uh, is possibly available for guy wants to purchase some acreage, so I need to talk to you about that. We are dismissed. No church tonight, by the way, remind you of that. Thank you.